I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. We went to Podcast Movement this weekend, and they said the first 30 seconds of your show are the most important. So here we go. 30 seconds. Bing, bang, boom. Ready? And 30 seconds. Go. We're very funny, and we're going to do stuff. Here's going to be great. You're going to hear about stories, and you're going to hear about people. History stuff. Romance. Love. Uh, affection. Uh, killing. Uh, all kinds of weird shit. Whoa! Woo. I think that was only like 10, so we're I know, way right? ahead. We're great. Yeah. All right. Well, the first thing we got to do is, of course, we got to do a little housekeeping. We got to mm-hmm. get some of this garbage out of the way. And... Oh, my God, I can't believe it. I feel like we're always here, but we got to revisit Corrections Corner. You're such a loser. Well, in our episode about Murasaki Shikibu and the tale of Genji, we brought up Wishbone, the literary dog. Yeah. Who I love, by the way. So this is really upsetting to me. (laughs) Childhood favorite. And I said Wishbone was a beagle. Wow. Fortunately, lovely listener Jonathan Garalami wrote in, And he told us, you're wrong. He's not a beagle. He's a Jack Russell Terrier. Obviously. It's this whole thing is that he's a Jack Russell Terrier. And I apologize to everyone because the wishbone deserves more respect. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's those those sharp ears that keep us honest and we appreciate it. So true. So true. Also, I think I believe this 
is the same Jonathan who left us a review on Apple Podcasts talking about how he likes to listen to our podcast while he works on a haunt build. I really need more information about this haunt build. I would like to know more. Please and thank you. Send photos or whatever. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, haunt build is that you can't just drop two words like that. What, and, where, uh, give us the deets. can I go? I mean, I need more information. <laughs> yeah, haunt, haunt me. So yes, thank you, Jonathan. Much appreciated. Yeah. Sorry to Wishbone and all his fans. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, let's get to it. Okay. Hey, y'all. What's up? Hey, everybody. I'm Diana. And I'm Eli. And today we have a very exciting story about George Remus. This one was suggested by a listener named Karen G. Thank you, Karen. Thank this you, Karen. This was a really good suggestion. Thank you so much. These are the kind of suggestions we like to get. Take note. We've been getting a lot of really good ones. So if we haven't yeah. got to yours yet, apologies, but it is on the list, I promise. And mm-hmm. when I say this is the kind of suggestion we like to get, I mean one. I mean <laughs> a suggestion. But yeah, so this story is about George Remus who was a super smart guy. He went from drugstore clerk to pharmacist to lawyer on his brains and ambition alone. But when Prohibition hit, he saw his real opportunity, and he became the king of the bootleggers, controlling most of the whiskey in the U.S. And he thought his empire was safe in the hands of his beloved wife, Augusta Imogene Holmes, when he was finally busted and taken to prison for a couple years, but instead... She double-crossed him with the very federal agent who'd been assigned to his case, leaving George with zilch. Would the king of the bootleggers take revenge on his backstabbing Betty, or would she leave him high and dry? All right, let's go. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio. So let's talk about George Remus. This guy was born in Germany in 1852. His family immigrated to the U.S. when he was four years old, and they moved around a little bit before they finally settled in Chicago, where his father worked as a lumber scorer, which I assume is somebody who looks at each log that comes through and says, <laughs> so he's German, so he's like, ah, that's the best piece of lumber we've seen this week. This is a 9.1. Yay! Exactly. So the Olympics of lumbering. Or maybe they like make the marks that lumber is then cut on. I suppose that could be it. That's another definition of scoring. Can you imagine if someone's like, oh, come see my house. It was built with only nines and tens lumber. <laughs> yeah, this is this plank oh, right man. here was an 8.7. <laughs> Sounds like my house is crap. It's all fours and fives. <laughs> yeah, well, George himself, when he was 14, he started working. Now, his father was an alcoholic, and he developed rheumatism and got too ill to work. So George had to step it up. When he was 14, and he started working as a clerk at his uncle's drugstore in Chicago. By the time he's 19, he completed a course to become a certified pharmacist. And by the time he's 21, he bought his uncle's drugstore and another drugstore. So he had two drugstores going on at this That's time. two more than I have. I know, right? When I was 21, do you know how many drugstores I owned? I didn't even own drugs at all. <laughs> I, had to, I had to go leech off friends. You were, you were <laughs> leasing your drugs at that age. <laughs> I was like, you got anything to smoke? 
So anyway, George has got two drugstores. He's a certified pharmacist. He also got an optometrist license. Jeez. The guy... Slow down, George. Save some for the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) But he did not stop there. He decided to study law. Sure. And he finished a three-year course in 18 months. Hang on. I have to take some time in my head to calculate (laughs) how many months out of three years 18 is because I didn't do that. No. It's a year and a half. Yeah. I figured it out while I was saying Good that. Job. I'm pretty smart. Mm, not as smart as George Remus. <laughs> Look, he's ruining the curve. All right. During this time, while he's at this three-year course in a year and a half. So during this time, he meets Lillian Klauf. She was a customer in one of his drugstores. And they just hit it off right away. And in 1899, they got married and had a daughter, Romola, in 1900. By 1904, George is a criminal defense lawyer with offices right next to Clarence Darrow's. Pretty sweet. Clarence Darrow, of course, the famous lawyer who worked on the Scopes Monkey Trial and was a leading member of the ACLU. It's here for Clarence. Mm -hmm. In one year, George defended 18 murder cases. Several of them were found guilty and sentenced to the death penalty, which George was very against. And so he became an very active member of the Anti-Capital Punishment Society. George liked a controversial client. He loved a murder case. He loved a big name. He loved anything splashy. He was a really theatrical guy. He liked to refer to himself in the third person. He actually earned the name Crying George, (laughs) or like Crying Remus in the courtroom, because he would cry if he needed to. He's just like I say, he's a dramatic guy. Hey, that's a solid tactic. Mm Mm-hmm. He was a meticulous dresser, an avid reader. He liked good art and good food. And he did not drink or smoke tobacco. According to the website Immigrant Entrepreneurship, he was also an anarchist. He did not believe in God or government. Wow. He knew how to fight, and he was willing to do it. He wasn't, like, jumping into fights all the time. But if he had to, he could give a good account of himself. Yeah. Yeah. And he was a strong swimmer. Apparently, he set a record in 1907 for staying in Lake Michigan. In the wintertime, for five hours and 40 minutes. And that record would stand for decades. What? This guy is fucking Harrison Bergeron. <laughs> like, th- why? He's too, that's too much. Again, George, I, I said save some for the rest of us when you were on seconds. And now you're on fifths. Like, come on, buddy. You're doing too I'm much starving now. starving here. In the courtroom, he favored dramatic pronouncements. Sure. Bits of arcane law and sweeping gestures and passionate arguments. And like I say, he loved a controversial client. He got famous in 1914 defending William Cheney Ellis, who was a guy who killed his wife. Um, He had William plead not guilty by reason of transitory insanity, which is known as temporary insanity, of course. Okay, okay. And a lot of sources say that he pioneered this line of defense, but of course, our audience knows that Harry Thaw actually tried the same thing successfully in like 1907. Right. But anyway, George loves drama, all right? That, all that to say, yeah. the guy loves a drama. And he's about to get plenty of it. Because in 1915, Lillian threatened to divorce George. She was like, Yeah, I've heard all about your flirtation with some hussy. You might even be paying her rent, I heard. Oh, George. Oh, wow, I see her. She's like in an Angora, <laughs> you know, white sweater and uh, mink stole. So Lillian didn't know this for sure, right? 
But she was absolutely right. <laughs> this definitely was happening. When you know, you know, is all I'm saying. <laughs> Women's intuition. <laughs> George had become infatuated with a woman named Augusta Imogene Holmes. And how they met is just a little obscured. In some places, she's referred to as his secretary. On immigrant entrepreneurship, they said that she worked at a deli near his law office. And he would go get groceries and talk to her there. And then in the New York Post, they said that she was a dust girl who cleaned his office. He told Lillian he was only helping her with advice about her divorce. You know, just a kind gesture. I'm just... He's like, ah, no, George is just, uh, George is just helping her out, say. George is just trying to help this poor girl out in a jam. She needs some advice about her divorce, and I'm a lawyer. I'm a little German. You can hear just a little bit of German in my voice. In the 1920s, see? So I'm just doing what I can here, see? Just trying to help this poor girl out. But as soon as Imogene was divorced, boom, they started having an affair. He even moved into Imogene's place in 1918, on December 26th. So, Merry Christmas, wife. I'm moving in with the client. But one day, this guy shows up at Imogene's place. He had found a watch that her daughter Ruth had lost at some point, and he wanted a reward for getting it, giving it back. Yeah, can't anybody just do anything nice? You know what I mean? Where's altruism? I don't know. Maybe he was starving. Maybe. He demanded $15 for it. Which, uh, hang on, let me check here. It's 1915? Right? 1918. Okay, just that, and? $225 today. Okay. It's a lot for a kid's watch. She countered with what she felt was a more reasonable offer, which was $5, which is something like 75 bucks now. Okay, that's still pretty that's good. That's still pretty good. Yeah. But then George got involved in the negotiations. He came in and punched the guy in the jaw and then chased him out of the house. <laughs> oh, thanks. Oh, thanks so much for bringing my, for, for bringing my, I don't know why you got Scottish all of a sudden. <laughs> like, Thank where? you for bringing my daughter's <laughs> watch. What voice did I just do? It was like, she, yeah, she. Yeah, she. Ah, thanks for bringing my daughter's watch back, yeah. That'll, that'll teach you to return children's return watches to them. The guy did press charges. Well, sure. Obviously, for assault. <laughs> they were dropped, but the whole story was in the papers, and now Lillian had proof that George was cheating. Right, row. So she filed for divorce in 1919 for cruelty. She said not only had he been providing a home for another woman for three years, but he'd also been physically violent to Lillian on several occasions. Damn. So he had to settle a bunch of money on her and their daughter, Romola, outright, as well as giving weekly payments to them. But he was free to marry Imogene, which he did in 1920. And he also formally adopted Ruth, Imogene's daughter, who at the time was 13 years old. Now, all this time, he's dealing with his love life. Big things are happening in the U.S., obviously. I don't know if you heard, but the late teens and the 20s in the United States, things were going down. Yeah, big shit. <laughs> first and foremost, the Great War. World War the First. The biggest uh, war anyone ever heard of at the time. Many implications to World War One, of course, but a big one was the anti-German sentiment that seized the nation. And if you remember George's... Uh, impeccable accent. Um, he is of German descent. At the time, 25% of high schoolers studied German. By the end of the war, only 1% of high schools even taught it. You know, which I would think that would make it more useful, honestly. But 
know thine enemy, mm. as you say. Yeah, yeah right. You know, I better well, learn I could be German. A spy if I learn so German. I could, yes, I could trick these guys if they ever get into my high school. <laughs> Apparently, they had a thought that if you spoke in German, you would begin to think like a German. Oh. Like if if you if you spoke another language, <laughs> this is I'm not even kidding. This is on I NPR. They're I like, if you speak like a Hun, you think like a Hun. Wow. Like I just wonder. I was like. Because we studied German before. Did, were we expecting everyone to suddenly be like, oh, I don't know why, but I love sauerkraut now or something. <laughs> like. So anyway, German sentiment not going well in the U.S. Buildings were renamed. German papers were suppressed. German books were taken off shelves in libraries. German-American citizens were even interned in camps. God, I'm just so sick of that. It's such a weird solution to anything. Yeah, anything remotely related to the culture of the country we're fighting must be destroyed. Put it in a pile and look at it. Make sure it doesn't move. It's outrageous. Because Germans often brewed beer, they were targeted by the temperance movement, and they used anti-German sentiment from the war to help spread their message. For example, they claimed that German brewers were financing Germany during the war. And so, oh, you drink that Budweiser. Hmm. <laughs> well, you know where that money's going. Straight to Kaiser Wilhelm's war chest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That beer paid for a Hun's helmet. So the call for prohibition is getting loud in the U.S. Yeah, and we won't get super into the prohibition, just the parts that, that matter for this. But I will say that a great podcast about some of the reasons why prohibition came about is it's called Unobscured. And they did a whole season on spiritualism. And I had always thought it was a bummer that suffragettes were a major proponents of prohibition because I was like, man, why y'all got to be such buzzkills <laughs> or whatever. But that podcast taught me how many of these women's husbands would drink away their entire week's wages at the pub and then come home and beat them up. So I was like, I guess I get it now. <laughs> that, Damn, that sounds no. like they'd be like, you know what? Maybe if he didn't drink, we wouldn't have all these friggin' problems. <laughs> uh, so I yeah. guess I get it. <laughs> yeah, check out Unobscured. We met with Carl, who is a researcher on that show, mm -hmm. uh, this week at Podcast Movement, and he's awesome. We had so a great cool. time hanging out with him. Mm -hmm. And we got to see Aaron Menke uh, give a panel, too, which is really very interesting. Very true. And helpful. Yeah. For so, ourselves. No surprise, an Aaron Mankey podcast is good. Check it out. <laughs> so anyway, prohibition is getting closer and closer to becoming law. People are being divided in this country into dries, who were for prohibition, and wets, who were against, which is like, ugh. Gross. Wets. I would be for prohibition just to not be called a wet. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> right. Terrible. And so they're crafting the federal legislation, and it was tricky because many senators and congressmen were wets. They liked to drink. Yeah. They owned a bunch of stock in distilleries. Like, you know, they had cellars because they were rich. So they had cellars full of generations worth of wine and beer and yeah, liquor sure, sure. that they were very proud of. They had to be real careful with how they wrote this legislation because they wanted it to pass, obviously. Yeah. That's the number one thing. So there's this guy named Wayne Wheeler, and he is the guy who is often credited with writing the Prohibition Act, but actually was just one of the guys in the room where it happened. Daniel Ockrent, in his book, Last Call, he wrote that Wheeler was pretty cagey about how he got this done. He made sure that it was not specifically stated that it was illegal to buy or drink alcohol. And he felt that that would make it easier if they caught somebody drinking, they would be willing to give up the name of their supplier because they, they weren't getting in trouble. Tricky. They just had to pass on a name. Mm -hmm. 
And then he also had them write intoxicating liquors instead of alcoholic beverages. And that kind of lulled a lot of the wets into a false sense of security because they were like, oh, well, cool. That means surely that we'll have some alcohol. It yeah. just won't be as strong. It'll be like absinthe and shit like that is going to go. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it'll be like something we can still get a little fucked up on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they were like, okay, fine. Yeah, we'll still have something to drink. But then Wheeler got to define what intoxicating meant. Whoops. And as Ockrent writes, he defined it as, quote, anything ingestible that contained more than 0.5% alcohol. This prescribed the lightest of wines, the most diluted forms of beer, and if you really wanted to get serious about it, the naturally occurring fermentation that takes place in some recipes for sauerkraut, which is 0.8% alcohol, and German chocolate cake, which is 062 He did make some concessions, though. Mm -hmm. He said, hey, rabbis and priests, you guys can still buy and distribute wine for religious services because you can't piss off the religious folks when you're legislating. That is rule number one. That's dumb. And because the South was so important to getting legislation passed, he threw them a bone, too. And he said, all right, ciders, your fruit juices, things like that. Those will be exempt to, quote, enable the farmers and housewives of the country to conserve their fruits. (laughs) <laughs> I think I think Ockrent said something like, apparently he said this with a straight face, <laughs> yeah. which I think is funny because it's like, okay, sure. Uh-huh. Y'all can make moonshine. <laughs> yeah, right. Go for it. <laughs> it was also legal for physicians and pharmacists to buy and distribute alcohol for medicinal purposes. Ockrent says 15,000 physicians lined up for permits before the prohibition was six months old. Got to get it in. Mm-hmm. For they, most of the, they saw which way the wind was blowing. Yeah. For most of the 1920s, a patient could fill a prescription for one pint every 10 days, and a doctor could write 100 prescriptions a month on numbered government-issued forms that resembled like a stock certificate. Remember all those senators with full sellers at home? Well, it was perfectly legal for them to have and drink any alcohol that they had bought before the act was passed. Oh, oh, it was nice of the legislators to throw the legislators a bone. I know. So sweet of them to look after themselves. I mean, I think everybody could, but still. Yeah, but We you know knew. who they were thinking about. Yeah. Who has a stockpile of alcohol that they don't want to get rid of right away? Oh, my God. Rich, rich people. people. <laughs> so before the Volstead Act, which is the law of prohibition named for the main writer, Andrew Volstead, before it passed... Plenty of senators started redistributing their stock holdings in distilleries. They bought a bunch of liquor and beer to keep at home, of course, while it was still legal. And other people quickly opened pharmacies and took deliveries of scotch. Even Volstead, who wrote the act so tightly that none of it was ever found unconstitutional, knew that they'd have to keep amending the law based on how people reacted to it. He said, quote, all laws will be violated. Yeah. I mean, true. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty true. <laughs> Ockerant writes, It was said often in the 1920s, the dries had their law and the wets would have their liquor. Well, everybody's happy. Uh-huh. Except for the all the heads we busted hauling or, people or up right. to jail. Except for much like marijuana prohibition. Yeah. You know, people who were rich got away with it and people who were poor or minorities did not. There and it is. they bore the brunt of the penalties that they wanted to put into place. So. Yep. After the act passed, there were some songs that got popular, like... How dry I am. I actually know that song. Do you? Yeah, that's 
I nobody knows how dry I am. Nobody knows how dry I am. You don't sound very dry. Well, that's for, I, the only reason I know it is because they would sing it in like old Looney Tunes oh. cartoons and stuff. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, like the cartoon ant would fall into a barrel of whiskey and then come out singing that song. Also, a song. <laughs> that became popular, was, I never knew I had a wonderful wife until the town went dry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that one I have not heard. One... Oh, you haven't heard that one? No, please, give me a few bars. <laughs> oh, didn't you know I got a wonderful wife, I got a wonderful life, and I never did know because I was drunk the whole time. Oh, it's got kind of a got kind of a snappy cadence, a little yeah. jazzy, a little... Uh... Yeah, I think they go into a break with like... Wow. It's the kind of... You know what? It's the kind of music you really want to hear when you're drunk at a a jazz club. I'm sure they listened to it and they were like, this is better than alcohol. I feel crazy. (laughs) So George, back to George, he's still practicing law. And after the Volstead Act passed and was enacted on January 16th of 1920... He started getting a lot more clients who were in trouble for liquor violations, of course. Naturally, there was one judge who really hated George's theatrical, long-winded arguments. George had come out like, Listen here, Judge. Uh, George has a story for you. Once upon a time, my client was on a green hillside, and suddenly a bottle of liquor just flew from the sky and fell into his hand, and he got up and danced like this, and then George would dance for 15 minutes. And the judge is like, okay, George. 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 George! I find you in contempt. (laughs) I find you intolerable. (laughs) (laughs) So this judge liked a direct, concise line of thought, the opposite of George. So when George had a case, the judge usually found the client guilty real quick (laughs) and just sentenced them to this huge $10,000 fine. But even though most of these clients were working class, George would see them just shrug and pay the fines. Most often with wads of cash, they'd just pull out of their pockets right there in court. Here you go, Your Honor, $10,000. Let me see. Let me check my uh, mm-hmm. shoe here. And like, ah, oh, here you go. Jump change. Yeah, just hand over cash. And it's like, okay, I'm going to go back to my rundown old house now. Hmm. And he's like, how is this happening? How are these guys getting so rich? He realized, of course, it was because of prohibition. He later said in court, Quote, I was impressed with the rapidity in which those men without any brains at all piled up fortunes in the liquor business. I saw a chance to make a cleanup. Well, how did he make his cleanup? Let's find out right after this. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow The Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut. Every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. 
Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes. And Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all, even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. And we're back. And George is ready to make some money off Prohibition. And everything he'd ever done up to this point would help him do it. Because he was a lawyer, so he studied the act. He found all the loopholes that they had carefully placed in, <laughs> in it. Right. And he already owned some drugstores. He oh, already had shit. a pharmacist license. So he's good to go. Plus, he was such a powerful swimmer. Oh, uh, he could uh, you know, swim through vats, uh, which I assume maybe comes up sometimes when you're doing, uh, when you're smuggling booze. Why not? I'm sure all kinds of weird shit comes up when you're smuggling booze. I'm just saying, booze. if I if I was looking for somebody to help me smuggle booze, mm-hmm. and it was down to two guys, and it was like, this guy can really swim really well, and this guy can't, I might think like, well, you never know if somebody's going to have to swim through a vat. A lot of vats in the, in the booze business. Or take a keg up the river. Sure. Yeah, sometimes that's got to happen. So anyway. Yeah, he could easily set up a fully legal operation, basically, to buy and sell alcohol for medicinal purposes. Right. But George as we know, is ambitious. He wanted more. Yeah. He wanted it all. Namely, he wanted all the whiskey in the U.S. under his personal control. Oh, is that all? (laughs) He actually thought that he could get so big that he'd be able to have stock in his illegal business on Wall Street. (laughs) I love it. It's time for George to get to work. At first, he tried to start operating in Chicago, which is, of course, where he lived and your go-to town for for bootleg and booze, right? Mm-hmm. If I if I had to guess anywhere to bootleg booze, I'd say oh, Chicago. That's where they did it, right? Mm-hmm. Al Capone, bing, bang, boom. Bing, bang, boom. But then he realized 80% of America's bonded whiskey was actually within 300 miles of Cincinnati. Plus, Cincinnati had a huge German population there. 
and the Volstead Act was unpopular to basically the whole place. <laughs> yeah, nobody liked that shit. Right, Cincinnati. <laughs> a perfect place for him to set up shop. He bought 14 distilleries with millions of gallons of whiskey inside. He got everything from Fleischmann's to Jack Daniels, just all the whiskey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and by, by the way, all this whiskey is legal because it's, as long as it's already made yeah. and sitting in the warehouse, it's fine. Did, right. You're good. That's why it's bonded whiskey. It's right. government-owned kind of. So you need like a government withdrawal certificate to take it out legally. So he buys another drugstore in Covington, Kentucky to distribute his alcohol on the medical market. <laughs> Medicinal alcohol. I love it. <laughs> but he would also hire guys to hijack his own trucks to divert the liquor back to the bootlegging market. He also had a farm in northwest Cincinnati, which he dubbed Death Valley because of all the hired gunmen he had protecting the road that led to it. His business became so vast that it grossed as much as $25 million per year. That is not adjusted for inflation. That is how much he was bringing in in 1921, which amounts to... Three hundred and eighty million dollars today. A year. A year. And he employed hundreds of drivers and guards and salesmen. He had office personnel, warehouse workers, yada, yada, yada. Big, big whole industry. A mm-hmm. lot of jobs. Akron also writes, quote, plus, of course, the lawyers, the politicians, mm-hmm. prohibition agents, police officers and other Confederates necessary to any self-respecting criminal operation. Mm-hmm. Big payroll, basically, here. So he, he and his family, Imogene and, and Ruth, move to Cincinnati. And at first they hang out in this hotel room for a little while before they get a house. But that turned out to be a bit of a mistake. U.S. Treasury agent William J. Mellon bugged his hotel room. And he listened to everything that happened inside it. One day he heard that George was about to bring 18 freight cars of illegal liquor across the Ohio River from Kentucky into Cincinnati. But when he took the info to the prohibition enforcement officials in Cincinnati, they barely cared. (laughs) They told him, son, there's times when a man has to be practical in this business. It's only a few weeks to election, and the information you've dug up is political dynamite. The men you spied on, the agents and marshals, are political appointees. Go back to New York and forget it. Wow. (laughs) Incredible. When the election came and went, Warren Harding became president. And Harding's presidency is pretty obscure these days because he had a hard time making decisions, so he's kind of a waffler, but he had some good moves. He was the first to allow regular people inside the White House. Thanks. Um, He brought black people back to government jobs after Woodrow Wilson pretty much purged all of them. Yeah, he was very racist. (laughs) Yeah. And he urged Congress to pass an anti-lynching bill, and he traveled to Georgia to tell everyone that black people should be able to vote. So, big thumbs up for uh, for Warren Harding there, Warren G. Warren G. And when it came to prohibition, he wasn't really into it either, it seems, because he appointed people to his cabinet, like Andrew Mellon, who was the Treasury Secretary. He loathed prohibition. He was super against it. And the prohibition commissioner, Roy Haynes, quote, was a punchline, according to Ockrent. His attorney general, Harry Doherty, bleh, prohibition, who cares? Yeah, I'm not going to worry about it. Mm-hmm. In fact, Doherty actually brought a friend with him to Washington named Jess Smith. Jess was just supposed to be an unpaid aide. But actually, what he started doing was selling government withdrawal certificates for liquor as the paperwork that you need to legally move liquor around that we talked about earlier. Wow. 
Well, George wanted those certificates, as you can imagine. <laughs> so he got close to Jess real quick, along with like every other bootlegger. Immigrant entrepreneurship says it made George feel invincible. He thought he had protection for his enterprise at every level, quote, from local police to the president's cabinet. Wow. But President Harding was also looking around for a woman to appoint. Suffragettes were super politically powerful at this point in the 20s, and he was looking for a symbolic appointment, right? We need a token woman to make the ladies yeah. feel good. Yeah, let's Get their show them. bloomers and a twist. <laughs> let's show them we'll hire women by hiring one woman. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Yeah, and no more. Too many. So they settled on Mabel Walker Willebrandt. She was this 32-year-old woman. She was only five years out of law school without a single case under her belt. Perfect person to be the assistant attorney general in charge of cracking down on the Volstead violators. Yeah. That's how much they did not care. Oh, yeah. They were like, good luck, bitch. You're going to get overwhelmed real fast. <laughs> but they didn't know about Mabel. Okay. Oh. Mabel was steely. She was relentless. She was stoic and very proud. She was also nearly deaf. According to a CrimeReads.com article, The Blue Stocking Lawyer versus the Bootleg King, she would spend an hour each morning arranging her hair to conceal her hearing aids. Oh, wow. Those hearing aids helped her hear a whole bunch of annoying shit about her clothes and figure. Wow. <laughs> so that's annoying. She worked really hard to not be too masculine or too feminine, not too aggressive or too agreeable. That that old tightrope uh -huh. that a lot of ladies are probably nodding along uh -huh, <laughs> about uh -huh, right now. Uh -huh. Mabel wrote an article once called Give Women a Fighting Chance, saying, quote, A boy must do the job well and develop personality. A girl must do the job well and develop personality. Plus, break down the skepticism of her ability. Walk the tightrope of sexlessness without loss of her essential charm. Keep up an impersonal fight against constant efforts to sidetrack her. Devote extra work and thought to making an opportunity out of every little opening. Make the hard choice between giving up children and home life in order to advance or having them in the face of increased prejudice. And lastly, maintain a cheerful and normal outlook on life and its adjustments in spite of her handicaps. Which I read and went, wow, nothing. Not a lot has changed. Sorry, Mabel. <laughs> Look, is it too much to ask? It's a short list. You just read it in like 15 seconds. Boo. <laughs> so she wasn't a particular fan of Prohibition herself. In fact, she was a bit of a social drinker, you know? Yeah. Pour me a stiff one. It's been a long day. Yeah. And the job was extremely hard. I mean, not only was the cabinet she worked for super not into prosecuting <laughs> liquor cases. There was also a lot of creative ways people were smuggling booze. Crime Reads says a double amputee war veteran boasted that he could carry 36 pints in his artificial arm and leg. <laughs> a woman also hid pints in her fake rubber breasts. A raid in a soda parlor in Montana found squirt guns with a two drink capacity. I love going to the bar and being like, I'll have a, I'll have the man's leg on the right. Hey, squirt me a shot. <laughs> yeah, squeeze me a martini out of one of them rubber titties you got there. <laughs> I've got the breast liquor in the world. <laughs> oh, wow. Hey, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think they called it boobweiser. Boobweiser. I hope they did if they didn't. I'll take a boobweiser. Put add it to my tab. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of creative ways people were getting around this law. Um, and it made it very overwhelming. But Mabel was determined to show that she was the boss bitch around here. That's right. But she had not caught on to George yet. 
By this time, George has been in business for two years. He has created one of the largest illegal liquor enterprises in the U.S. Gross revenues exceeded $50 million, which is around $758 million today. Wow. So he and Imogene are living large, okay? Yeah. They had a huge mansion where George installed this beautiful Grecian swimming pool lined with rookwood tile and surrounded by southern palms and colorful lights. He called it Imogene Baths in honor of his wife. Wow. They had insanely lavish parties where every guest would find a $1,000 bill under their dinner plates. Okay. Spoiler alert about my personal money situation, but I didn't know there was a $1,000 bill. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I was like, oh, really? <laughs> if I found a $1,000 bill under my dinner plate, I'd be like, well, this is fake. I would, yeah, definitely. Oh, I'd be like, oh, this is Very under- funny, and I'd tear it up. Yeah. I would turn it around and be like, is it going to be like, you've been saved? <laughs> right, yeah. For party favors, women would get diamond earrings and new Pontiacs, and Jeez. men would get diamond stick pins and gold watches. I'm sorry, can I trade my watch in for a Pontiac? Right? (laughs) I'm like, man, today it's like some candy and like a weird ring pop or something, but okay. Do I have to pay taxes on this? (laughs) At one New Year's Eve party, Ruth jumped in the swimming pool yelling, Happy New Year's! And George joined her in full tuxedo, (laughs) which I just thought was cute because it made him look fun, you know, and cool, whatever. Oh, yeah. But he also left the party shortly after retiring to his library to eat ice cream and read a biography of Abraham Lincoln until dawn. Of course. That's so George so to be George. like, Oh, no, this party is such a rager. Oh, I'm having such a good time. Time to read a biography of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> you know what? I haven't learned anything yet. Today. Yeah, yeah. The best liquor is information. <laughs> <laughs> it's intoxicating. I like to get drunk off of knowledge. <laughs> But George truly was in love with Imogene. Crime Reed says that he depended on her socially and in business pursuits, and he sought her advice in deals. He confided in her. He gave her little nicknames, his little emo, mm-hmm. the truest and sweetest, my prime minister, my centipede, my monkey, my gem, the apple of my eye. Not just one eye, but the apple of both of my eyes. Aww. Look at that. That's just sickeningly sweet. Mm-hmm. And she was super cool. She was dashing. She was a fashionable flapper. She was always in the middle of everything. She was glamorous. And she was totally devoted to George, too. So the two of them were just this power couple Mm -hmm. in the bootlegging industry. But one day, you know, George, he flew a little close to the sun. Mm. George had attracted federal attention when he put through his biggest liquor shipment yet. It was enough whiskey to cover every single physician in America for their prescriptions for a year. But it was this routine traffic stop that did him in. A guy got stopped for some piffly little traffic violation, you know, like didn't use your blinker or like, you know, bumped the curb or ran a stop sign, something like that. Something nonsense. And they found a little whiskey in his trunk. And the guy's like, okay, I'll tell you everything. I'll tell you exactly where I got it. I got a George Death Valley farm. And the cops are like, oh, wow, that was much easier than I expected. Very easy. <laughs> and soon the cops stopped another guy who had several cases of whiskey in his car. And he also was just like, oh, hey, you got nothing on me. I was just transporting this whiskey from, from Death Valley. 
And not only that, I, I know that there's nine men who control all the liquor distribution in over 60 cities. I mean, these guys just spill it. <laughs> yeah, they do not care at yeah. all. They're like, I'm just the driver here, pal. <laughs> I mean... So the feds raided Death Valley. They seized all the liquor there, which was, of course, insane amounts of yep. liquor. And they indicted George on 3,000 charges of Volstead violations. Oops. It was like one of the most sweeping indictments in the history of American, the American justice system at that yeah. point. Yeah. George, of course, quickly remembered all his high-level connections, and he met with Jess Smith. And Jess promised him that Doherty, the attorney general, would make sure George would never see prison. But then George was found guilty. Whoops. He was sentenced to two years in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, which is just down the street from us. Oh, yeah. Um, he also got a $10,000 fine, which seems like not enough <laughs> right. for what was going on here. Yeah. And he met again with Jess, who again assured him that Doherty would get him pardoned. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Oh, Jess. Making big promises. Jess was found dead later of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. At the time, a senator from Alabama said that he was murdered because Andrew Mellon, the Treasury Secretary, had loaned the Republican National Committee $5 million, and they only paid back $3 million. And Jess was in charge of getting the rest of the money from the bootleggers. Seems a little fishy in either case. You know, hashtag Jess Smith didn't kill himself. <laughs> All right. <laughs> if I may. I'm like, it's possible that he killed himself because he was supposed to get $2 million from bootleggers and couldn't. I mean, well, that's possible, that's too. Well, that's true, you know. And he was like, oh, shit. But either way, something shady was going on with Jess yeah. Smith, and it's an unsolved mystery. So in 1924, George got ready to go to prison. He gave power of attorney to Imogene, giving her possession of their mansion, that huge, gorgeous, ridiculous mansion with the Imogene baths. And he gave her over a million dollars in withdrawal certificates. He gave her stock in the Fleischmann distillery. He gave her everything. So she was pretty much the de facto head of his entire business as long as he was in prison. She comforted him. She said, Never mind. When it's all over, we'll go away somewhere and forget the disgrace. And George took the train to the penitentiary, reading Dante's Inferno. Yeah, this guy had a book for every situation. He's like, I'm going to prison. What do I want to read? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Something about going to hell. <laughs> uh, let's see. What? Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Yeah. Although, at first, everything was fine for George. Imogene visited often. She cleaned his cell and cooked him meals. Ockrent says that he stayed in a cushy part of the penitentiary called Millionaire's Row. Oh, sure. And later, he had his own apartment in the prison's hospital building, where he, quote, ate dinner each evening with two other well-connected bootleggers in the peaceful hush of the prison's Catholic chapel. Is there a problem with the prison system that we need to talk about? <laughs> I think it's all working out great. Oh, okay, never mind. I thought there was something grossly unbalanced <laughs> and corrupt. Oh, well, I, I didn't finish my sentence. I was going to say it's all working out great for a very small segment of the population. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that right. was the part I left out. All right, well, then discussion over. We can stop talking about yeah. the prison system now. Everything's fine. It's all working out. <laughs> uh, his business was safe outside prison with, with Imogene. Yeah. And he was safe inside it. Yeah. So he's like, I'll do a couple years easy time. Everything's yeah. fine. My wife is handling this. We're good. If there's one thing I don't have to worry about, it's the way my wife handles things. Because we are very much in love, and there's and she has complete power and control mm -hmm. over my enormous multi-million dollar business. Nothing to worry about. Meanwhile, Mabel is 
always working hard in the background. She decides she's going to tap a rising star at the Bureau of Investigation, which would eventually, of course, become the FBI, and he was going to help her take George down, this guy she tapped. He was the 30-year-old Franklin Dodge, and he'd already helped bust up a ring of Georgian bootleggers called the Savannah Four. He got sent to Atlanta to investigate the warden of the penitentiary, right? And he discovered a bunch of corrupt practices going on at this prison that George was in. While he was there, he met George, and George told him he'd be willing to name the federal officers he'd bribed in exchange for leniency. And Dodge told him he'd look into it. He said, oh, I'll look into it for you, George. Maybe we can make something work here. Maybe we got ourselves a deal. And so George tells Imogene, hey, why don't you uh, go flirt with Dodge next time he's there? Because Dodge, that's my best chance to get out of jail. So, hey, my wife there, with all the money and business and everything in my life she has control over right now, why don't you go flirt with this guy, this young, powerful guy here, and we'll see how things go. Even though he's in jail, George's legal troubles keep coming. A big shipment of whiskey from his Jack Daniels distillery was busted as being stolen. Thanks to Franklin Dodge, by the way. And George was indicted while he was still in jail Damn. for this other crime. So George met with Mabel herself this time, and he told her he would testify if he could have immunity for this charge. So she agreed. He became their star witness. He told everyone in 1924 all about his arrangement with Doherty and Smith, how he built his empire. Ooh. He told him there's no doctor in the world who prescribes alcohol for medicinal purposes. <laughs> so their dumb law was the problem and not him. <laughs> he called it the greatest comedy, the greatest perversion of justice that I have ever known in any civilized country in the world. And Mabel managed to indict 23 people for the Jack Daniels distillery theft, including some prominent St. Louis politicians. Wow, she's racking up the... Mabel's doing good. I'm sure, especially after Doherty and Smith were named in court. Right. I feel strongly that all of them were like, oh, shit. Shit, drop your shit and run. We fucked up and got a capable woman instead of some dummy. (laughs) Now, Imogene was visiting less and less. She just wasn't coming by so much. And George was starting to hear rumors that she might be cheating on him with some strange guy who happened to be a federal agent who happened to be building a case against him, Franklin Dodge. (gasps) He refused to believe it. He says, no, Frank would never do me like that. Mm -hmm. Imogene would never do me like that. We've got deals to both of us. But Mabel heard the same rumors, and she decided she was going to go check it out. Cause Mabel, she ain't no dummy. Mabel gets to the bottom of things. That's mm-hmm. what she do. And it turns out, oh, they were true. Franklin and Imogene had started a love affair. Because, mm-hmm. of course, Imogene had flirted with Franklin, just like George wanted her to. But, you know, I guess he flirted back, and it worked. It worked because... out, y'all. Franklin was able to convince her to start liquidating George's empire and hiding the money. Uh, speculation station? Yeah. I got an idea. Maybe he, like, convinced her, hey, you know, hey, uh, George, he ain't never getting out. So, uh, how about, uh, how about we just take this money ourselves? Forget him. He's stuck in there. Let's just take it and go. You and me, doll. Probably. Because I was definitely like, what made her think that taking his money and running off with another man would be more profitable in the long run than staying with George, who has proved himself many times over to be a guy who can make a lot of fucking money. Right. So maybe she was just actually really fell in love with Franklin Dodge and was like, I don't, whatever you want to do, I'm in. You know, I don't know. 
But sometimes, she's, she's a bit of a bitch about this to George, I have to say. Sometimes that big stack of cash right now is more enticing than a larger stack spread out over time. Very true. Bird in hand and all that. Yep. Well, however he convinced her, he did convince her. Like, big time. She went all the way with this. She used the power of attorney she'd gotten from George to strip him of his fortune. Ooh. They raided his bank accounts Ooh. and safe deposit boxes. They sold off his whiskey certificates and distilleries. Ooh. Franklin, of course, was forced to resign from the Bureau after Mabel yeah. found out that he was <laughs> acting inappropriate. Yeah. Uh, so he didn't have a job at this point. <laughs> um, but he's doing fine. He's trying to sell off these certificates. They're getting all this money. And Imogene filed for divorce in 1925. George found out that his entire multi-million dollar empire had been sold off piece by piece. And to add insult to injury, they sent him $100 while he was in jail. Oh. Which feels like a little bit like, eh, here's your cut, bitch. Like, you know <laughs> no, what I mean? That is so rude. I was like, oh, that is so mean. <laughs> so George finally gets out of prison in 1927. And he went home only to find his huge mansion's windows and doors nailed shut. Oof. When he got inside... Every stick of furniture was gone. Damn. The chandeliers were gone. The tile of Imogene Baths had been stripped. Wow. They took his bookcases, but left all the books. Thanks. In his bedroom was an old cot and a pair of men's shoes that didn't fit. And he found all his clothing piled up in the backyard. He discovered that she intended to marry Franklin, so she removed the R from her silver and replaced it with a D. Damn, he, they even took the roast beast. <laughs> the, even the roast they beast? They shoved the, ch the tree up the chimney. They took it all. Took it all, that last little crumb. Mm -hmm. He went back for it. <laughs> oh, man. And she had bought seven automobiles while he was in prison, too. Which I'm like, I guess she wanted one for each day of the week. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you can't drive the same car twice. What am Ooh, I, how, poor? How embarrassing. <laughs> So George, you know, he's an emotional guy. <laughs> Not that this isn't I would an do extreme situation. He breaks down in tears. He stayed with some friends who said that he hallucinated. That he would see Imogene and Franklin together. George is just at, he's at rock bottom right now, right? This is not George's time. He's got no money. He's got no business. He's got no wife. But you know George... He's a go-getter, and he's not the kind of guy to just take something lying down. He's a man of action, and it was time to show it. And it's time for us to show you some great commercials. So we'll be right back. <laughs> hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Bring it every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. 
at JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes. And Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all, even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. And welcome back to the show, everybody. Imogene has taken everything. George had a mental breakdown. But now he's like, I need to get my revenge. So he got sad. Then he got mad. Then he got even. Like you do. He filed his own divorce suit against Imogene. Oh. He talked about her often with the press because, you, you know, he wouldn't talk shit. Uh-huh. He called her names like degenerated clay. <laughs> whoa. Whoa. How, hey, man? Whoa. Whoa, George. There's children present. <laughs> he called Franklin a moral leper. Sure. A human parasite. Yeah. And Imogene's pimp. Well, it's a little little rude. Unnecessary. A little rude. <laughs> uh, their divorce proceedings went on for quite some time because it was held up with countersuits and they were, you know, they were just going back and forth about it. Yeah. At one deposition, George got so mad that he tried to throw Imogene's attorney out the window. <laughs> hey, man, don't kill the messenger. <laughs> He's like Batman just holding him out. Right. Like... Swear to me. <laughs> Imogene and Franklin themselves were not taking any of that lying down. They tried to get George deported by telling the government that George had never become an American citizen. They paid a hitman $15,000 to try and kill him. I guess they got a shit hitman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think it was waste of fifteen thousand dollars. Okay. I want to know that guy's story. For he real. Just went like, around just promising hits. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, that'll be fifteen thousand dollars, please. Thank you very much. Uh I'll be right back after the murder. <laughs> Never to be seen again. She also accused George of assassination plots against her. They would both show up in court with bodyguards. Quite a show. We're not sure if he ever actually did 
He certainly would have had the connections to do so in the bootlegging business, but he also didn't have a lot of money to throw around. Yeah, Imogene. Taking it all. <laughs> Where's my $15,000? Also, he kind of seemed like a, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself kind of guy, right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about all that. Yeah. Finally, on October 6th, 1927, the divorce was going to be finalized. It was all, all the arguments had been argued and they were done. But George found out that Imogene and her daughter Ruth were staying at the Alms Hotel the day of their divorce proceedings. So he got a driver to take him there. They waited outside until he saw Imogene and Ruth get into a cab. George's driver chased the cab, forced it off the road. Imogene knew she was in trouble at this point. She jumps out of the cab and goes running up this hill with George close behind. And in Ruth's court testimony, she said that George was cursing and swearing and acted like he was crazy. He grabbed my mother saying, I'll fix you, I'll fix you. When he grabbed her, Ruth heard Imogene scream, Oh, Daddy, dear, you know I love you. Daddy, you know I love you. But George, he was past caring about all that. So he shoved the pistol into her abdomen and pulled the trigger. It was actually only the second time in his life that he'd ever used a gun. Imogene was rushed to the hospital and died on the operating table a couple hours later. Damn. And then George marched on down to the Cincinnati police station, flung the doors open, walked up to the desk and said, I'd like to turn myself in for a murder. Mm-hmm. When he learned that Imogene had died, he told police, quote, She who dances down the primrose path must die on the primrose path. I'm happy. This is the first peace of mind I've had in two years. He said he was only sad that he hadn't gotten to Franklin Dodge as well. He told reporters that he turned himself in because he had a clear conscience and didn't want to run around the country as a fugitive. Quote, a man who feels that he has performed a duty to society and that he has committed no moral wrong does not run away from the consequences of his act, he declared. I did you all, basically, I did you a favor. (laughs) You all, I killed this horrible woman. It was a duty to society. I did nothing morally wrong. I'm a good guy. Very, uh... Very Harry Thaw. Very Harry Thaw, Mm -hmm. for sure. So he's, of course, indicted for first-degree murder. Of course. You know, First-degree murdered someone, yeah. (laughs) Because he first-degree murdered someone, yes. His trial, of course, a big sensation. Yeah. The prosecution was headed up by Charles Taft, who was the son of the former president and, at the time, current chief justice of the Supreme Court, William Howard Taft. And Ruth was Taft's star witness. He painted Imogene as a woman terrified of her violent husband who wanted to testify against him, so he killed her because she knew too much. But George's first wife, Lillian, and their daughter, Romola, testified for George. He represented himself. I know. I thought it was interesting that they did because she said he was violent towards her and stuff. Yeah. He represented himself, of course. He pled transitory insanity, which is the same defense that made him famous back in 1914. It comes and goes, you know? Sometimes I'm crazy, sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm fine. You can't blame me for sometimes being real crazy and violent. Lillian called Imogene a gold digger and said George had killed her in self-defense. Well. It's kind of a stretch. Yeah. And Imogene became a woman who willingly participated in bootlegging, betrayed her husband for a corrupt government agent, stole her husband's assets, and tried to have him killed. I mean... Which does have the benefit of being true. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I don't know about this violent husband and all that, but... Self-defense, you know. 
So George steps up to argue his own defense, and he's in his element, right? A dramatic case, telling his own story. That's mm-hmm. that's George to a T. He spoke for an hour and a half, making the whole trial more about prohibition than murder, saying basically the Volstead Act created bootleggers like him and corrupted agents like Franklin Dodge. I yeah, can't and if entirely it weren't, disagree. If it weren't for all that, I wouldn't have murdered my wife. And the jury's mostly made up for first and second generation German immigrants. So he appealed to them by talking about his humble beginnings. He says, This defendant started life at $5 a month. And he may have contaminated his neighbors, but ladies and men of the jury, we could not all be born with a golden spoon in our mouths like Charles P. Taft. (laughs) Some of the jurors wiped tears from their eyes as he concluded that he just wanted justice, not compassion, and that he had been defending the sanctity of his home, and if that was a crime, then lock me up. And then he said, Merry Christmas. (laughs) Charles was not amused. (laughs) He knew exactly what George was doing, and he told the jurors George was playing with their emotions. He's basically doing everything but singing O Tannenbaum to fucking appeal to them. He's like, don't let him play with you. The trial lasted five weeks and two days, but it only took the jury 19 minutes to decide that George was not guilty by reason of insanity. Wow. Juror Robert Hosford told the press, When we retired, I said, Let's go out and give him a Christmas present. Let's make him happy this Christmas. He says he wasn't happy last Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm like, if every case is like, well, he wasn't happy last year. I'm like, well, come on, man. Basically, the jury thought George had suffered enough at Imogene's hands, and she deserved what she got. Wow. On December 30th, he was committed to an asylum. But by April, he was out on appeal. His evaluation of his sanity was the only time he would ever express remorse for killing Imogene. He never did go after Franklin Dodge. He spent the rest of his life trying to get his personal properties and the distilleries that Franklin and Imogene had taken back to himself, but he was never really successful in that. Probably because it was perfectly legal because he had given her his power of attorney. So she was allowed to sell whatever she wanted. Absolutely, yeah. He had a real estate office in Cincinnati and he lived in Kentucky, just fading from public view. And he died in 1952 and was laid to rest in Falmouth, Kentucky without any fanfare. Franklin Dodge repeatedly denied having an inappropriate relationship with Imogene, even though there was like, there's so much evidence. (laughs) There is so (laughs) much evidence, Franklin. Look at the evidence. Do you see it? Yeah. He ended up serving three years at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary himself for false testimony in another bootlegging case. So this guy's just golden all around. And he ended up working for the Michigan Liquor Control Commission after Prohibition. He married, and he died in 1968. And George and Lillian's daughter, Romola, who had stuck by her dad through it all, she became a silent film actress. She was actually the first person to play Dorothy Gale in a Wizard of Oz film. Mm-hmm. And there's no word on what happened to Ruth. She would have been 20 at the time of her mother's murder. If I can pull into Speculation Station. Sure. Do you think Ruth knew where all this money was hidden? Oh, damn. Because that's the only thing I'm not, I wasn't finding is what happened to all the money. Because did Imogene and Franklin actually spend it all before he got out of prison? Oh, man. Or did Ruth be like, I know where that shit. Shot of Ruth putting her sunglasses up, Mm -hmm. looking over her shoulder, Mm -hmm. picking up two heavy duffel bags and walking away. Walking the fuck out. That's what I think. I was like, and she changed her name to Betty White and made it big in Hollywood or something. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 
Uh, so no word what happened to Ruth, but Man. I'm thinking, I'm thinking she knew where that shit was buried and went off and lived hey, a great life, I'll chilling with a lot of money and some Rookwood tile. <laughs> yeah, she's got all the tile. <laughs> she has all the tile. That's the shot up. at the end. You see a woman <laughs> in a bathroom with all the Rookwood tile, and they're like, and that's Eight how out. you know, oh shit, it's her. She got the tile. <gasps> she knew where it all was. Wow. Well, prohibition, you mm-hmm. know, fucked up everybody. Wild time. Yeah, I mean, again, even when you look at, I kind of get George's case that, like, Prohibition made people bad because it was a bad thing that we were kind of pushing back against. I mean, it's a lot like marijuana prohibition, isn't it? Because, I mean, first of all, marijuana did actually does actually have some medicinal properties. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But, you know, it's the same thing where it's sort of like if you're poor and a minority, I'm using this against you to harm your community as much as possible. Um, It's not really doing any harm. A lot of people use it, and we know that, and we're just kind of letting it happen to the point where it's finally like, you know what? Fine. Fuck it. Like, let's just do this. Why are we doing this? Right. And if you're rich, you get as as much as you want with no Mm -hmm. consequences, and you can hire... Uh, you know, f- people in the law system, in the legal system, and the justice system uh, to make it okay for you. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it is very similar. And it is, yeah, the, the same outcome where you're getting, who's getting punished, right? you know, and who's getting away with it. Yeah. He even said one time, I realized the frailty of human nature, but I didn't count on the fact that in a clash between principles of right and wrong, justice would win. <laughs> So it was like, as soon as he was like, oh, well, we'll just break the law. It's no big deal. He thought that he would totally be able to get away with it without any problem. Like right. that, that was his opinion of the justice system. Right, right, right. Well, uh, man. And the other thing, too, is like, you know, I don't want to say, yeah, kind of joked about it, but it's not like he should have expected uh, his, his wife to steal all of his money and assets. Uh, they seem to have a good thing going. So, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, at the end of the day. I'm going to lean to her side because, you know, she got murdered. Oh, wow. It, that it's was true. That was the wrong choice for George. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter how wrong he was. Uh, murder, going to go ahead and say it. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of the consequences of saying this on our show. Murder's bad. Mm. Always the wrong choice. Wow. Yeah. You know, what's funny is that he was so anti-capital punishment. Right. And then he right. decided to give her a capital punishment. <laughs> Come on, George. I mean, how hypocritical are you? I guess, yeah, I can see that he lost all faith in the legal system, at least. Oh, yeah. So that probably changed a lot of his opinions about things. That's true. That is true. But, yeah, it was definitely, I, I did feel a little bad, though, that, like, Franklin Dodge just totally dodged any fucking... <laughs> dodge and dodge. <laughs> he... Any consequences at all, really. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know that he got, got any of the money... But he sure lived well for a little while and with Imogene, and he never got in trouble, really, for any of that stuff. And so did so many yeah. federal oh, agents yeah. during Prohibition and mm-hmm. politicians and just, like, way more people got away with it than got in trouble. Very true. You know? So, yeah, I was just like, of course, the lady got in trouble, and uh, yeah. that was it. Everybody else is fine. Yeah. But she did do a fucked up thing, so... So I uh, hope you all enjoyed this episode. Hope you had a nice mm-hmm. uh, cold drink in your hand for it. <laughs> right. Uh, raise a glass to Karen G for suggesting this again. Yes, this is such a good one. Thanks, Karen. Yes, thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, that's if you want. If you got feedback, if you got any thoughts, if you have another suggestion of your own, don't mm-hmm. forget to hit us up at romance at iheartmedia.com. Uh, we're also on social media. 
Um, I'm at Dynamite Boom on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at, oh great, it's Eli on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find the show at Ridic Romance for fun memes and mm-hmm. announcements and little games and messages. We'll take them there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks as always for joining us. We are obsessed with you guys. Yeah. So tune in for the next one. Pass it along to your friends. Oh, yeah. We're not please. kidding when we say your neighbors, your uncles and aunts, tell them all mm-hmm. uh, to listen to the show and to join the ridiculous, uh, what are we, what are we, the ridiculous romance army, the ridiculous romantics. Yeah, ridiculous the, uh, romantics, that sounds yeah. normal. The ridiculous romance army sounds very aggressive. Ridiculous romance army, we will crush all other podcasts. Just <laughs> a weird combination of words. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks for tuning in, y'all. We will catch you on the next one. Bye. So long, friends, it's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.